other languages and versions that are available at the back, and the page numbers for those are on the screen. <clears throat> so it's Esther chapter 2, and we're starting to read at verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for, a beautiful, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in, ch- in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who was, had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favour. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. 
When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Joe, thank you very much for reading that. Uh, Do keep Esther T open in front of you because we're going to spend uh, a few minutes looking uh, at that chapter. I think we need to pray uh, as we do so. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage... Uh, we pray we would be even more sure of the words we've just sung, that our song will ever be, how wonderful, how marvellous is my Saviour's love for me. Amen. Well, someone said to me at uh, Roots this week that if the story of the Bible uh, was made into a film, it would certainly be given an 18 certificate. Now, as I was preparing this uh, passage at the same time, I thought, yes, you are totally right. You know, if you, here we've got the beautiful, attracted women. We've got the sex scenes. We've got the violent, murderous plot. We've got the gruesome death at the end. There's no hiding the fact, and I'll get straight to it, this is an uncomfortable passage to read. It raises so many questions, doesn't it? How can women be treated this way? What gives a king uh, the right to demand all that he wants? Why didn't anyone try to stop this horrendous contest that's going on? Why is this in the Bible? And we look at this chapter and we ask what? We ask why? And as I'm sure Joe was reading it just then, there was questions flying through your mind. And can I say it's right to be disturbed by what happens here? I think that's kind of the point, or at least part of the point. Uh, Yes, uh, it's recording the history of what happened, warts and all. But the writer is also recording it in a way that gets us thinking about situations we find ourselves in. Whether they are good situations, whether they are bad situations. Whether they're situations that... No matter what choice we are faced with, there doesn't seem to be a right answer. And we get to the point where there's just an odd mix of right and wrong going on the whole way through. But he does that so then we can see, as we see this passage in the sweep of the whole story of Esther, that above these is that silent sovereignty of God, unchanged, being outplayed. Silent sovereignty because, remember, in the book of Esther, God's name, God's, is, God's name is not mentioned once. It's like he's not there, and yet, as you read it, he's clearly there, working to preserve and protect his people. So I want to spend a few minutes uh, together looking at how this messy, immoral situation can teach us something about the situations uh, we find ourselves in today. 
Um, but first, uh, as we work through chapter two, we're introduced to the three, to three main characters uh, of the chapter. In fact, three of the four main characters of the book. We'll meet the fourth uh, next week. The first is King Xerxes. Now, we met him last week. He's the king of the Persian Empire, the largest uh, empire in the ancient world. And last week, we saw he's a bit of a wealthy party animal. He thought he was powerful. He thought he was in control. But in reality, he became this kind of almost comedic uh, figure uh, trying to grasp at power that was never really his, trying to grasp at control that he never really had. And as we meet him at the start of chapter 2, a bit later, uh, in, uh, in his reign as king. I wonder if there's a little bit of regret at what he did in his drunken rage. Look at verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Even in the start of chapter 2, it's almost that little reminder that he's not in control. Vashti made her own decisions. In, in fact, as you... Read through the book of Esther. This is something that I, uh, someone mentioned to me this week. It is striking that King Xerxes, this great powerful king, never makes any decisions for himself. The advisors make all the decisions. He just goes along with them. He's not in control. And the same is true here. Look at verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed that a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king that the king appoints commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women to the harem at the citadel of Caesar. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treats be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the Lord, uh, pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. The scene is set for this horrendous competition. Uh, to take place. But before we get there, uh, we need to meet the other two characters. The first is Mordecai. He lives in the citadel of Susa, we're told in verse 5, the same place where uh, King Xerxes is. Uh, That means he's not a peasant uh, who's just living in the city somewhere. Uh, He's in the citadel. He's kind of in the the centre of the city. So he had some sort of good standing. He also had a good standing with his Jewish uh, history. He's a descendant of Kish. Uh, it tells us, meaning his ancestry could be traced all the way back to King Saul's father, way back 600 years uh, earlier. And Kish was uh, among those that were taken into exile uh, with King uh, the Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So he was part of a noble group. So he had good standing that way in his uh, noble blood. And he also had good standing in his family. Uh, when his uncle and aunt died, he took his cousin in, treated her as a daughter. He visits her every day when she's taken uh, away from him. He's a loving family man. So he's a, he's a fairly decent guy. And then a third character is uh, his cousin, uh, Esther. Now, other than the fact that she's a Jew and both her parents had died, the emphasis the writer wants us to see is just one very important thing. Esther is stunningly beautiful. But the whole way that this is, is written is so we won't miss her beauty. Both her Jewish and her Persian names, Esther, Esther is her Persian name, are linked to the myrtle plant and the beautiful fragrance uh, it gives off. She is beautiful. So we've got these three characters that are going to come through our story, but we need to see what happens uh, to Esther and Mordecai. Firstly, Esther. Now, Esther seems to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Look at verse 8. 
When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Caesar and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So this contest uh, is about to begin. Men and women are uh, rounded up from around the empire uh, and taken uh, to the palace to be prepared for the king. Of course, they had absolutely no choice to go. I guess the only criteria was, are you good-looking enough uh, in the soldier's eyes to be brought in? And so, of course, beautiful Esther is taken to the palace as well. Now, at this point in the story, I kind of want Mordecai to go full Liam Neeson from the film Taken. You know, stop at nothing uh, to rescue his daughter, uh, bring her back. You know, I don't want any of my daughters uh, taken off to this place. But I guess Mordecai knew he had little choice. He had uh, to let her be taken. And up the palace, uh, Esther finds favor with the king's eunuch. He provides a special treatment. That's there in verse 9. That's on top of the beauty treatment that all the young women went through. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and cosmetics, as verse 12 tells us. See, they're being prepared for the king. Verse 14. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of uh, Shazagaz. The king's eunuch, he was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. These women, they're taken to the king as virgins. They come back to live with the concubines. It's not hiding the fact of what happened there. It's not the beauty pageant that the children's stories of brain queens Esther tell you about. This is a sex contest. It's horrendous. It's horrible. And Esther is forced to be part of it. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abilahal, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. She must have thought she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. She's a Jew, part of uh, God's people, but not in the land they were supposed to be in. They were in exile. uh, Under the charge of an all-powerful superpower. She was even having to hide the fact that she was a Jew. Her parents had both died. She'd been taken away from the family she had left. uh, And she was living uh, in this environment with women who were vying to win the favor of the king. As one female commentator says, I bet that's a pretty catty and competitive place to be. She'd been taken by force, knowing she's about to be entered into a sex contest. There is no way you can look at this situation and say it's good. The harem where Esther is taken is horrendous. If only she'd lived another time. If only she'd lived in another place. She wouldn't have had to found herself in this position. It's bad. And we can't escape that fact. 
Now, within the situation, uh, Esther acted in a way that stood out. She, as we saw, she finds favor with everyone who saw her. She's given special treatment by the king's units. She even, even more than that, she wins the favor of the king himself, becoming queen. Verse 17. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the uh, other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made a queen instead of Vashti. She's made queen. Someone better than Vashti, as chapter 1 got us to look for, is, is here. But it's not a good situation. And it's easy for us to, uh, to sit here on the other side, um, trying to think about you know, how should Esther have best fitted in? Did she uh, compromise her faith to fit in? Uh, maybe growing up in the citadel had taught her how to act. But the fact is, we can join centuries of debates on whether Esther should or shouldn't have compromised, how could she be in the world and not of the world. But the thing is, other than Jesus, all the heroes and heroines of the Bible are flawed. They're confused, they're often disobedient, and Esther is no different. And actually, we're no different. And yet God graciously chooses to use people like us, those herons and heroes of the Bible, through all the moral mess that is going on, to bring about his purposes. You see, in reality, Esther had no choice, or very little choice, about where she was and what she could do. Every decision she could have made had negative consequences. We've already seen what a king does to someone who refuses him. If she goes to him, she knows where she, what's going to happen to her. She has to make the best of the horrible situation that she finds herself in. And so as we stand back and look at this episode, I think it offers us actually some comfort and encouragement when we find ourselves in a situation when as we look at it, every decision, every option is bad. There's no clear best answer. You know, our, our, we know our uh, responsibility is to live in obedience to God's word in whatever way we can. However, sometimes it's just not clear how that happens. And so the story of Esther here takes us and encourages us to make decisions in the best way we can, knowing God's in control. That silent sovereignty of God. Now, I don't know, Esther may have looked back at her time uh, later on in the harem and was, was ashamed of what she did. She may have looked back and been in, uh, had a completely clear conscience knowing she did uh, the best she could in a horrendous situation. And I know as uh, we look back over our lives, we can see both of those. Times we're ashamed of what we did and times we just think we did the best we can. Uh, and when we're making those decisions, God may have seemed absent you know, we may have wanted clear guidance from him. And yet, Esther tells us that even if we don't get the clear guidance, that doesn't mean God is absent. God is there. He is in control of every situation. And I think that tells us then once the decision is made, we must entrust it to him. There's no benefit overanalyzing uh, all the permutations of past events. Trust God's sovereignty in working to preserve and protect his people, like he did with Esther. 
And the thing is, sometimes that sovereignty is hard to see in those difficult situations. So let's uh, look at Mordecai, who seems to be in the right place at the right time, because I think it will be easier to see there. Uh, So look at verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gates, uh, Bigthana and Terash, uh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this is recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So Mordecai is sitting by the uh, king's gate one day and he happens uh, to be sitting there as two guards uh, were there happening uh, to be talking uh, about an assassination attempt in voices that just happened to be uh, loud enough for Mordecai uh, to hear. Uh, Mordecai decides to tell Esther rather than keeping that news to himself. You know, bear in mind, uh, the king is holding his people hostage uh, and he's taken away his daughter. But he tells the the queen. And Esther just happens to be able to speak to the king, who just happens to be able to uh, believe her enough, uh, who carries out an investigation which just happens to find that the events uh, that were described are true. Now, we need to tuck this story away. It becomes very important Uh, and the pivotal episodes of the whole book in chapter 6. But can you see there's too much going on there for it to be coincidence? As we look at the two situations Mordecai are in, uh, and Esther are in, we're happy to see all those things that happen to Mordecai and say, oh yeah, God's put him there. With all these coincidences, it's there because that's where God wants him to be. It's harder for us to say that for Esther, isn't it? And isn't that true of our own lives as well? I'm quite, I can see God's working that brought me to a church that taught me about Jesus where I became a Christian. I can see God's working in the way that he brought me to meet Emily, my wife. I can see God's working the way he brought me to Platt. I find it hard to see God's working in the death of my grandmother a few months before my wedding day. I see it harder to see God's working in the miscarriage we had. I see it harder to see God's working when I'm waiting in hospital for my children to come around from a general anaesthetic. But doesn't this chapter show, especially in the context of the whole book, God puts us in the situations we are in, whether they are good and it's easy to see, or whether they are bad and it's difficult to see. And we won't understand always, especially while we're in them, why God put us in those situations. We might not understand, like Esther had the benefit of understanding afterwards. We may never know. It may seem that God is completely absent. And yet, the story of Esther shows that isn't true. Well, it's the horrendous situation of the harem and how Esther becomes queen. Uh, as we will see as the story goes through, God has put her in this place at this time to preserve and protect his people. Or whether it's the situation of overhearing an assassination attempt, God has put his people, whether it feels like it's the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the wrong time, in these situations. And so that leaves us with a question. Do we trust God in every situation he puts us in? Whether it seems good, whether it seems bad. 
I don't know the situations you're facing at the moment. I guess in a group this size, there's going to be all sorts. I do know there's people here who are going through amazing and exciting and good times. I also know those people here who are going through horrible, sad times. And in no way am I downplaying either of those or the emotions that go through them. Bad times are just painful. And we can't escape that. What the writer wants us to do as we look at the good situations and the bad, painful situations, to see that God is there in both. To see that God can be uh, trusted in both. To see that God is working in both to preserve and protect his people. See, God is never absent. No matter what it might seem, he's always with his people. He's always with you. If you're a Christian here today, he is with you no matter what situation you're currently going through. And he asks us to trust trust him. Trust he's in control. Even if he seems absent, God's silent sovereignty carries on. Trust he's working to preserve and protect his people. If we trace the story uh, of Esther and her people through, we get to Jesus. Jesus, who was in the horrendous situation of facing death, even though he'd done nothing wrong. Jesus, who knew the physical, spiritual, emotional pain. And as he waits, asks for the cup to be taken from him. Jesus, who knew those things like we do, and yet had an unrelenting trust in his Father. Jesus, who fully shows us that God's sovereign plan is to preserve and protect his people. Jesus knew God was using the horrific situation he found himself in for good. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God's silent sovereignty. God working to preserve and protect his people. It's what the book of Esther is about. It's what we see in the Lord Jesus. And it's what's going on in our lives. And so there's a question that I'd like us to uh, go away and think about today. And it's this. Like Jesus did, like the story of Esther demonstrates, do we trust that God is working out his plans to preserve and protect his people in whatever situations we face? Do we trust that God is working out his plans to preserve and protect his people, to protect you in whatever situation we face now or in the future? That's the truth the Bible presents us with, that he is doing that. Let's pray we realize the truth of that in our lives. Shall we pray together? How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Well, we know there are times when it's easy to sing that song. And times it is more difficult. 
And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to sing it in every situation. The situations we are in now that are great and good, the situations that are painful and sad. We would see that your silent sovereignty continues as you work to preserve and protect your people. Amen.